I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in the series, Season of the Spirit, Season of the Flesh. A spiritual exercise to accompany this teaching can be found at vancity.church slash season of the spirit. It seems like we have lots of reasons to feel anxious right now, but the world has always been chaotic, broken, marred by evil and death. Knowing this, Jesus boldly promised, my peace I give you. How do we, as disciples of Jesus, unlock the peace he gives in the age of anxiety? If you haven't been around the last few weeks that we've been doing this, we've been learning over time that this thing that we're doing, church, in the time of the pandemic with masks and social distancing and hand sanitizer and the thermometer, an exciting new thermometer actually. This week we got a new one and there was a lot of hubbub around the office about that new thermometer. Um, what we're doing is obviously not, a ordinary, not an ordinary Sunday gathering if you were with us before <laughs> everything changed. It's not like that. And it's got some semblance of those things in it, but it's not that. It's a little bit like what we were doing around dinner tables in Van City communities every week, but it's not quite that either. It's some strange in-between thing, so we're trying to make the most of this time while we have it. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John, chapter 20. Now, ordinarily, when the world seemed less insane, we'd spend our Sunday evenings unpacking the scriptures, one line, really one word at a time. But these Sundays back together, not at all, like I said, a normal Sunday gathering, not a community gathering around a dinner table. These Sundays we've been using to, as you've probably noticed over the last few minutes, we've been using them to pray and to contemplate and to meditate and to listen to God's spirit and find ways to keep in step with God's Spirit in a great season of what the scriptures call the flesh. We are designed by God to understand much of life in the world through the prism of stories. The Bible is a story, the gospel is a story, the things that we think and believe are themselves stories. So I think about movies and novels quite a bit, moments and fragments of stories that bubble up in my consciousness as a means of understanding and coping with the world. Maybe it sounds silly, but this week I was thinking about a popular science fiction film with a familiar plot device, and artificial intelligence becomes self-aware. And with centuries of detailed data on the human race and the world, the infinite reserves of the internet streaming through its cold robot brain, this machine becomes immediately and understandably pessimistic about humanity. And who could blame him? Like many similar stories, this now villainous AI sets out to eradicate the human problem as he sees it, defending its mission by citing natural cycles of chaos and cleansing. And I thought of this quotation from the film where the AI says, the human race will have every opportunity to improve, and if they don't, ask Noah. There were more than a dozen extinction-level events before even the dinosaurs got theirs. When the earth starts to settle... God throws a stone at it, and believe me, he's winding up. Now, God, for this evil AI, was likely a symbol, but of course, lots of people actually believe that sort of thing, that God is engineering all our heartache because he can, or because he's mean, or because it's all for the best and we just don't get it. I don't believe any of that stuff, that God is in control of all this insanity, that he's cruel or capricious, or that he's really got some great reason for doing it that the puny human mind can't comprehend. I don't believe that, but I do believe 
in cycles of chaos. It does feel like every time the world starts to settle, I would say chaos, evil, the Satan throws a rock at it. And it feels like we've been in one of those hit-by-a-rock seasons for the better part of a year now. A friend of mine sent me this meme this week that puts it well. You know, what better way to throw a little levity in with, than with meme humor? I don't know if you guys can, you guys understand what's going on there? It's a bunch of burning porta potties You get it. The year 2020 has a scented candle, it says. Now, of course, in the big scheme of things, in broad picture, broad strokes, 2020 is not that unique. Every year, it is to us, but every year all over the world, horrible things happen. People are sick and dying. There's war and economic collapse, and societies are being destroyed by hatred and violence. But regardless of your place in it all, the world of 2020 is starting to feel from where we sit a bit like one of those old wooden roller coasters with whiplash and painful jolts and constant threat of going off the rails altogether. When we went into lockdown, we started to crawl back out of it and we got shut down again. We moved to phase two, but we got frozen there indefinitely. Businesses, businesses started to shut down for good. We learned that our kids, most of us uh, kids won't go back to school in the fall. We flattened the curve, but what about the autumn? Will we go back into quarantine? We don't know. Every time the earth starts to settle, chaos throws a rock at it. Back in February, Ahmaud Arbery, black and unarmed, was murdered by three white men while out on a jog. The world didn't hear about it until May 5th, when predictable outrage moved through the country and the world. But then civil unrest reached a boiling point a few weeks later as the world reacted to the vicious on-camera murder of George Floyd. We spent weeks here in Advanced City in practices and in scriptures working through God's concept of justice and God's utter disdain for racism. And what we were trying to do is to learn to think theologically about race and injustice rather than through the lens of world politics, which uses the loud, hateful, and unthinking megaphone of social media to bludgeon complicated people into us's and them's. And we concluded that series about racial reconciliation with the concession that the pursuit and practice of justice doesn't end with a sermon series. Much of the civil unrest in the weeks of May and June was violent and ugly and mean-spirited, politically idolatrous. But there was also a sense that other people were learning and changing and that good things were starting to happen. And that was good. But then we watched another incredibly disturbing incident, police brutality caught on camera, another white officer unloading round after round into the back of Jacob Blake, a black man in Wisconsin, broad daylight, witnesses, including his children. And then Kenosha, Wisconsin, it seemed to explode with outrage. And during that ensuing violence, fires broke out, several people were shot and killed, a teenager became a murderer. And in the time that passed, between my initial drafting of this teaching to this evening, more people died. Counter-protesters killing protesters, protesters killing counter-protesters. And the cycle of political outrage and violence, the tail of the snake, is in its teeth. Every time the earth starts to settle, chaos throws a rock at it. And it's starting to seem like there are lots of really good reasons to feel anxious. Here's one simple definition of the term anxiety. A feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. 
Really, we've been anxious for a while now. In 2018, Barnes & Noble announced a 25% increase in the sale of books about anxiety. In 2018, that is. Medical News Today wrote that anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting approximately 40 million adults. That's nearly one in five people, if you're counting. The World Health Organization reports that globally almost 300 million people have anxiety disorders. In a poll of 1,000 U.S. residents, the American Psychiatric Association found that two-thirds of the participants were, quote, extremely or somewhat anxious about health and safety for themselves and their families, and more than a third are more anxious overall than the previous year. One study published in the 1990s found that people who actively pursued money, looks, and status were more likely to feel anxious and depressed. That was in the 90s, before the social media explosion in which money, looks, and status became the primary and mostly imaginary currency of the digital age. Slate Magazine claimed that, quote, the United States is now the most anxious nation in the world, pointing out that stress-related ailments cost the nation $300 billion every year in medical bills and lost productivity, while our usage of sedative drugs keeps skyrocketing. Americans more than doubled their spending on anti-anxiety medications. Statistically, we're getting more anxious all the time, and we're getting there earlier. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America found that anxiety disorders affect more than 25% of children between 13 and 18 years old. If that's not jarring enough, psychologist Robert Leah argues that the average child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. And listen to this. All of those studies and statistics and quotes I just threw out were written before the global pandemic. So take the anxious world and throw one heck of a big rock at it, and then what happens? Today, the pre-COVID world seems like a fortress of stability by comparison, a thing of the distant past. But we were crippled with anxiety before all this. And now what? We have no idea when we'll make it back to our old anxious selves. Just about everyone is starving for some kind of peace right now. Thing is, culturally, we define peace as the absence of conflict. And that makes a lot of sense. We're only human. But the big problem is, and you can see where I'm going with this, peace as absence of conflict is nowhere in sight. When the gunfire quiets in Kenosha and in Portland, the hysterics of election season and the ensuing social outrage will be ever before us. People will continue to die all over the world. Some other thing will happen. Chaos, it seems, will reign. If phase three ever comes, the autumn will come as well. And then what? And if the people who desperately crave reopening get their way, the people who desperately want ongoing lockdown will go bananas or vice versa. One of the only things that seems to have any discernible shape in the gray fog of the future is conflict. It seems like serious end-time stuff, but the cosmic stones of chaos have been hurtling into the earth for centuries, for millennia, really. In the time of Jesus, for example, the Roman Empire famously touted their beloved Pax Romana, or Roman peace, but it was peace at the end of a sword. The idea was if smaller, weaker civilizations were willing to pay tax and tribute to Rome, there could be peace and prosperity. If not, Rome destroyed them. 
And amongst the Jewish people, the hope for peace was not in Pax Romana, it was in Messiah. Messiah was a coming political and military leader who would put an end to Roman oppression, stop the oppressor, bring justice, end Roman rule with Jewish revolt, installing a kingdom without end on the blood and backs of the oppressors. So it makes a ton of sense that a massive amount of Jesus' would-be followers left disappointed when he went around preaching nonviolence rather than military uprising, enemy love rather than revolt, and the kingdom of God rather than political activism. He continues to disappoint would-be followers today. Because into the world of ongoing violent conflict, Jesus proposed something else entirely. Not Pax Romana, not Jewish revolt, but transcendent peace. We're almost to John chapter 20, but before we get there, look at this. In the 14th chapter of John's biography of Jesus, the Lord himself tells his friends this just before he goes to his execution. He says, The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace, in other words, is a gift Jesus freely gives. His disciples did not ask for an advocate to remind them of Jesus' teachings. They did not ask for the gift of imparted peace from their master and they wouldn't have known how to ask for those things or what that means. And that's important because some of us tend to imagine God's default setting as like a, a mountain mystic. You know, you've seen them depicted in movies and cartoons. You have to ascend the mountain, all kinds of trial and rigor. And when you get to this sage on the mountaintop, sitting lotus position in a hut usually with a fire burning, you get to ask one question. And if you've asked the right question, you just might get the most important, albeit mysterious wisdom of your life if you can decode it. But Jesus, being human, was aware of and familiar with the human condition. He understood our need for peace before we understood it, and he initiated. We did not ask, and he provided the same peace described by the master around a dinner table with his closest friends in a politically charged age of anxiety and civil unrest. That same peace is available to you and to me now. John Tyson describes several dimensions to this peace and several unique ways we access it. The first, he says, is the peace of his presence. Now, later in the same biography of Jesus, after Jesus has been killed and his disciples, disciples were despairing, their sadness and anxiety, likely as great as it had ever been, Jesus himself stepped back over the precipice of death, igniting something within them they never thought possible. And I'm struck by a line in John 20. So if you're there, go ahead and look down at John 20, beginning at verse 19. It says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And re listen to this. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Remember, this is their friend. This is someone they loved, and they knew he was dead. They saw it. 
I don't think that this joy mentioned by John could possibly be some kind of like robust understanding of the resurrection and all of its theological implications. Oh, we get the resurrection now. We're overjoyed. How could that be it? The overjoyedness that the scripture mentions is that their friend was dead and now there he is. Not just alive, but he's with them. They don't just hear about it from someone else. He's with them and they were overjoyed just to see him and be close to him, the peace of his presence. And notice the text tells us that Jesus showed them his hands, which were nailed to the cross, and his side, which was pierced when he died. Scholars argue that Jesus likely did this to demonstrate both his identity to his disciples, it's really me, and to demonstrate his commitment to them. See, it's really me. I am physically raised from the dead. I'm not a spirit, not a vision, not a hallucination. My actual flesh and blood body was dead, and now it is alive again. But showcasing his hands inside also reveals his commitment to the disciples. They would remember this moment forever, and they would later learn and continue to learn that the image of Jesus' hands inside were a physical, a tactile demonstration of his commitment to them. It was for them that he faced and conquered death. Before Jesus was born, God had declared that he would become known as Emmanuel, which means we know God with us. And even now that sounds kind of abstract. Sure, yeah, God is with us, whatever that means. But Jesus stepped into a room, flesh and blood, after he had been dead, and he reminded his friends how very with them he was. I hurt just like you. I bleed just like you. I die just like you. And now I am with you. I am in this with you. And there's a lot more to it than just bleeding and dying. We often forget that Jesus spent the first three decades of his life in obscurity. He lived in a backwoods village doing manual labor, a nobody. He was God that entire time. For three decades, year after year after year, working in the heat, going home to a tiny town on the fringe of the known world. God understands what it means to be overlooked, to live in obscurity, to feel like a no one. Jesus was a persecuted minority. He was abused and despised by the political systems of power. God understands the struggle against systems of power and social injustice. In fact, the author of Hebrews goes as far as to say that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus knew well what it was like to struggle with desire and temptation. And you would think that the creator God of the universe, when stepping into the muck and mire and depravity of the human experience, you would think that he would only see fit to condemn it. I often feel that way. I often feel cold and pessimistic when observing injustice, brutality and violence and child abuse and hideous two-headed monster of political idolatry. I feel like that cold AI when made aware of the evils of a chaotic world. The only conceivable response feels like extermination. Franz Kafka famously wrote that the first sign of the beginning of understanding is the desire to die. But when personally immersed in the horrors of violence and evil and suffering and, and all of it that we've made, that we're responsible for, when immersed in all of that, God's response was to rescue us. 
Our response to the horrors of existence is often outrage or hatred or despair. But God's response is redemptive love. And it would seem the ultimate easy for you to say when an omnipotent God speaks down over the inferior rabble of humanity and says, don't be afraid, the most repeated command in all of the scriptures. But God actually understands what it means to suffer or to fear or to experience pain and suffering. So this peace of Jesus is not naive nor unthinking. It's not peace as the world gives in the words of Jesus because it's not contingent on the absence of conflict. This is peace in the throes of struggle and despair and disillusionment and disenchantment. Peace in pain and suffering and chaos. God is not detached from our struggle. He chose to experience that struggle and not out of boredom, not out of some kind of divine experiment. He did it compelled by love for us, for you specifically tonight, where you sit with all of your garbage, for you specifically. Do you actually believe that? This is the God who offers transcendent peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The peace of his presence. The second dimension of Jesus' peace is the peace of his purpose. Look down at John chapter 20 again, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, the doors locked, fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Every one of us has been given the great mission of Jesus himself. Because of Jesus, our lives have been infused with meaning and purpose and with mission. Whether you're a teacher or a nurse or a student or a parent or a waiter, an engineer, an artist, you have been designed by God and sent into the world to do good through the avenues and seasons of your life via your unique wiring as you, not as someone else, as you. Jesus gives us the peace of purpose that we matter and what we do matters. But Jesus also gives us the peace of reconciliation. If you know where we're at in John 20 in terms of the overall narrative, where we last left the disciples, they had deserted and denied Jesus at his arrest. And after his death, they fled into hiding. They were filled with despair despite Jesus' many explicit promises to come back to life. But that's a hard pill to swallow. Does Jesus appear to them to scold and reprimand their betrayal and their unbelief? No, reunited with the disciples who abandoned and denied him, Jesus says, peace I give you. Thomas, if you know the story, in his cynicism and doubt, stubbornly threatened, I will not believe it unless I see and touch him for myself. And so God, in his mercy, appears to Thomas in the flesh and says, go ahead, touch me. Peter had gone back to fishing as if none of this had ever even happened. And Jesus goes to him and restores him to leadership and ministry. Peter, who had denied that he even knew Jesus at all, though deserving of condemnation, we have not been condemned, but saved, and thus the peace of reconciliation is available to us. And it's more than that. It's also the peace of God's power. 
Look at John 20 and verse 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. That's the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that empowered Jesus to heal and to preach and to know and to love and trust God. That same Spirit is now in us. Pastors, I know, love cheap analogies from dorky moments in their own lives. I try not to do that so much. Maybe you're thinking, oh, he does it all the time, but I don't think I do. Here's one anyway. All that to say, here's one. A few years ago, I bought a bicycle. I rode it to work every day, but then I got a flat tire. And I asked my friend Mike to help me change the tire because he said he knew how. But by the time we'd put everything back together, the little gear shifter thing wasn't right anymore and the bike could no longer shift gears. It was stuck. So for a while, I tried figuring it out. I don't know anything about bikes or fixing them, but you know, there's YouTube and everything. But I actually couldn't find any helpful instructions online. The manual just said, you're in trouble. You better call the people. And uh, a few people warned me, oh, the bike shops are going to charge you a ton. You should just tinker with it. But I couldn't tinker with it. So I told myself, I'll figure it out at some point. In the meantime, I put it in the garage and I started walking to work. It's still in my garage <laughs> years later, still not working, by the way. So if anyone knows anything about bikes, this is also my not-so-subtle way of inviting your help in my life. The thing is, I know that the bike still works. It stands to reason. It's probably a relatively simple fix. It's not total. I have options. There are things that can be done. My wife reminds me all the time. But there's a hurdle there. There's this hurdle. There's some stuff that I would have to figure out to make it happen. And it keeps me from this resource. It keeps me from this thing that I know would make everything much easier for me. And it's right there and accessible. But I'd have to do something, you know, to get to it. And I haven't felt a pressing need to fix the bike because I just came up with other ways to get to work. They're harder and they're more complicated. But, you know, I get there. The thing about this season of anxiety is that it can become, if we let it, the thing that dashes our coping mechanisms to pieces. It, it can become, if we let it, the catalyst that we need to access what we've been needing all along and what's been there all along because everything else starts to fall away. The peace of God's presence, the peace of his meaning and purpose in our lives, the peace of his love and reconciliation, and the peace of his empowering presence, the Holy Spirit. When chaos hurls another rock at the world, we will still be God's children. No amount of chaos or evil or injustice can separate us from the love of God. Earlier, we defined anxiety as a feeling of worry, nervousness, unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. The transcendent peace of Jesus is not peace as the world gives. The peace of the world is the arbitrary lack of conflict. It comes and goes. We have no control over it whatsoever. But the transcendent peace of Jesus is peace in conflict, and it's often born from conflict. In Dostoevsky's final novel, The Brothers Karamov, the devil tells Ivan that, and I quote, Hosanna must be tried in the crucible of doubt. Meaning it's not enough to believe without questions or without struggle. And later, at the very end of his life, in 1881, Dostoevsky wrote this, it is not as a child that I believe in Christ and confess him. My Hosanna has passed through a great crucible of doubt. 
Nobody knows what's coming. Yes, the disciple of Jesus lives in the promise of hope and restoration, but also the promise of trouble in the words of Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble, chaos. That is why the gift of Jesus' peace is so pressing. We need it to weather the storm. We need it to carry other people through the storm. As a pastor, the anxiety epidemic has been ever before me for years now. I've met and talked with person after person after person who's struggling with either frustrating peripheral anxiety or the kind of debilitating anxiety that keeps them from life in the kingdom, keeps them from community, keeps them from their vocation and calling or their future and their formation, their maturity, and who God has made them to be. And please listen to me when I say this. If you hear nothing else, hear this. God's will and purpose for your life is no anxiety whatsoever. No worry, complete freedom, the peace that surpasses understanding. So if you are carrying anything other than complete freedom from worry and the peace that surpasses understanding, then you are not walking in the fullness of life as God the generous and loving Father intends. And that's not a guilt trip, that's hope. The hope that God's heart for you is healing and freedom and for something to change in your life. But you probably already know that God will not clobber you or coerce you or commandeer your will so that he can make you do what he wants. In conversation after conversation with the great many people I've known struggling with anxiety, the depressing commonality in most of them is that they aren't willing to do anything about it. And they come up with all sorts of reasons not to get healing and freedom, all sorts of reasons to persist in the bondage of anxiety and worry rather than seeking freedom. And I don't mean, you know, like do something about it, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps or walk it off or toughen up. I mean to actually receive help. Bring that pain into the vulnerability and accountability of community or get into counseling and therapy or ask someone to help you. Ask someone for resources. It's entirely unrealistic to assume that you will overcome fear and anxiety by yourself. It does not happen. And that's not a sign of weakness or admission or an admission of guilt to reach for help. If anything, it's a sign of weakness when we don't reach for help. One of our elders, Scott, he left a note here in my teaching that just said, life together is a team project. And he's so right. Your life as a disciple of Jesus is worked out in the beautiful imperfection of community. That is how it is done. And it's not just about you. It's not just about you getting better, getting healing, and getting freedom. A growing body of research indicates that a parent's stress level has massive effects on their children, including the likelihood that they will themselves be anxious and an increased risk of mood disorders and addiction. And it's not just parents. When you are not at peace... You are not free to operate in the fullness of your identity and calling. And as a result, the world misses out on you. And you may feel as if you have little to offer the world and what you have to offer is insignificant, but that's not what God says. And who knows better? You or God. In this season of the flesh, a great crucible of doubt, an age of anxiety, my plea to you, the church that I love, is to accept the gift of Jesus' peace, which I know is often easier said than done. So it is time to examine the obstacles that keep you from fully grasping that peace and to do something about them. 
talk to someone in your community or get into counseling. We have a list of recommended counselors at the ready. Ask someone for help. Ask for an ear. And as all of us face the unknown chaos of the future, let us together create rhythms in our lives that allow us to draw near to God with open hearts and hands and to receive from him the peace that he promises. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.